0: Hello, welcome to Science Book Shambles, an extra book shambles that we're now doing on a weekly basis with science authors and also scientists, in addition to the usual weekly episode of Book Shambles. You can hear an extended version of this interview by supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash book shambles. I know I always say forward slash, but that's because I'm 51 years old.
1: Here's the conversation. Hello and welcome to Science Shambles, producer Trent here. Yes, as Robin said, thanks very much to our Patreon supporters. And if you would like to become a Patreon supporter, now would be a great time to do so. Not only do you get extended episodes and other goodies as well, but an uncanny hour. Our new podcast documentary series is rolling along. Episode two has just come out. A look at Hawkwind in the 70s, hosted by Robin and featuring conversations with Stuart Lee and Alan Moore and Stacia Blake and Stephen Morris of Joy Division and lots more as well. So if you can support us on Patreon that would be absolutely wonderful or if you were planning to come to Robin and Brian's Christmas Compendium of Reason or Nine Lessons and Carols for Curious People that's not happening in the usual capacity this year of course but we are doing a live online 24-hour plus edition. We're just adding the plus because we know we're going to overrun. That's on December 12, and you can get a virtual ticket for that at crowdfunder.co.uk slash 9lessons. All the profits from that will be going to charity like usual. Incredible lineup of guests on that already Robin, Brian, Helen Chesky, Helen Sharman, Chris Hadfield, Chris Jackson, Sophie Ellis-Bexter, Samantha Christopheretti, Nitin Sawney, Mark Sprigstock, Rachel Parris, and on and on and on and on. You can support that at the Crowdfunder site and then watch it online for free midday December 12th. Now let's get on to this week's episode. This week we chatted to Jan 11, who called in from the US to talk about her new book, black hole survival guide that black hole survival guide i should say which is out this week so i hope you enjoy this chat here it is
0: Hello, welcome to Science Shambles and today's guest is someone who uh, both of their non-fiction science books I absolutely uh, love, how, how the Universe Got Its Spots and uh, Black Hole Blues and uh, Black Hole Blues which was uh, about the search for gravitational waves, a uh, very very beautiful book and now it's just black holes, to, to hell with the waves, Uh Jan 11's new book is Black Hole Survival Guide. Uh, it will be... We don't know when we're going to definitely need that survival guide. Uh, we, we know there's a black hole. We know it's in the middle of our galaxy. We know there's a lot of them dotted around the other galaxies as well, generally dotted right in the centre of those galaxies. So, yeah, it, it for purely pragmatic reasons... You might not need it for your own personal jeopardy. But in terms of understanding black holes, which just throw up so many intriguing ideas of cosmology, it it is a a wonderful and rather beautifully illustrated book as well. Um, Janet, let's start off with... You start off by saying something which is so counter-instinctual to so many people, which is a black hole is nothing.
2: Yes. (laughs) I think that was actually part of the reason why I decided... Uh, to write this book was because that is so essential to the very concept of a black hole and yet it's something that is terribly misunderstood. So I often hear people say, well, black holes are really incredibly dense, right? They're incredibly dense objects. And actually, they can be formed by incredibly dense objects, but that's not what they are. So the story often goes like this. There's a star. It's a very massive star, it has a short life, it collapses under its own weight, it does not have the pressure to support itself anymore, and it begins to collapse. And yes, that star gets incredibly dense. At some point it gets so dense, it curves space-time so strongly that the escape velocity from that would exceed the speed of light. And it creates archeologically, in the shape of the space-time, a region beyond which you would have to travel faster than the speed of light to escape. But that dense star doesn't just sit there. That region we call the event horizon. It doesn't just sit there. In fact, what Sir Roger Penrose proved, which won him the Nobel Prize this year, was that that star is forced to continue to collapse. And it continues to fall inside the event horizon that it has left behind as this archaeological imprint. And it falls towards the center. What happens, we can talk about, but the point... Of your question is that if you are coming up to this left, this, this archaeological remnant of the event horizon, there's nothing there at all. The stuff is long gone. It is not the star, the black hole. The black hole is not the star. It is what's left after the star has gone.
0: See, what intrigued, and this might be intolerant, but sometimes when when we've, we've done shows and we've talked about, about black holes, like recent monkey cage, we didn't. Is this are we seeing to some extent a model village version of the Big Bang in reverse, how something enormous becomes nothing
2: well that's an interesting question there's two different parts the big The big Bang, unlike a collapsing star, does not have a center, so people often imagine the Big Bang as something that explodes from a center the way a star explodes. so if you ran the movie of the black hole backwards, if you just ran the movie backwards and out came rushing a star from a central point, like an explosion, that would not be a model of the Big Bang. The Big Bang is way stranger and more extraordinary. It's actually the creation of the space-time itself in the Big Bang. So that when we say, where was the center of the Big Bang? The center was everywhere. It is not an explosion in space of a spherical like set of materials. It is the explosion of space. And so if I point to this galaxy and I point to a galaxy on the edge of the observable universe, they were both once at the center of the Big Bang. And that's extraordinarily different than an exploding star. If you look at a supernova that explodes in space, you absolutely can point to the center of that supernova explosion and you see the matter rushing out from that center. Instead, in the Big Bang, matter is everywhere and the space is stretching everywhere and everything's getting further away from everything else. And it is not piling up anywhere else. And so that's, that's, a, that's a very exceptional concept um, for the Big Bang. But a lot of people have modeled the interior of a black hole when the star collapses and, uh, and comes to the point of creating a singularity, which is a region of such extreme curvature and density that it's actually probably signaling the breakdown of, of the very theory of space-time that we're using. But, but what some people have tried to do is say, oh, you know what, that actually can be sewn on, like sewing together a quilt, two space-times sewn together, it can be sewn onto a big bang space-time. That in the center of the black hole is the idea of a white hole, where, uh, where if you continue through past the singularity, you actually end up being part of a big bang and your very particles get exploded out into kind of a new ecosystem. Now there's no causal evidence for this. This is not like the laws of physics predict this. They certainly don't. But we're allowed to speculate and we're allowed to ask if it's mathematically conceivable. And it is mathematically conceivable. And that's kind of cute. So you're also saying, not only is there this extraordinary way to continue the black hole past its center, but But you're actually saying the black hole is bigger on the inside than it is on the outside. So the black hole could be, what, six kilometres across on the outside, but as big as a universe on the inside.
0: See that because the inside. Now, this again, this was something we talked about on Monkey Edge and it it faster that idea that there is no insight, because I, I I think the instinctual thing with someone's picking up this book is their initial will, will be the sense that that there is this event horizon, and then people go beyond the the that the, there is something beyond that event horizon, there's something beyond that that surface area, but there is also th- this that that the surface area is everything, and there is no, I mean that that again is one of the black hole is just constantly pummeling any sense of instinct, isn't it? <laughs>
2: Yeah, yeah. In fact the most modern ideas, the the ideas that are really happening today that are really challenging um theorists on the absolute edge of what we understand, are, are a lot of the conversations do sort of end at the event horizon. In other words, the suggestion that the interior is maybe just has, has been a distraction, that everything significant about the black hole relative to the laws of physics happens around near because of the horizon itself. And so when we talk about a black hole, we don't mean the singularity. The singularity, in, in some sense, everybody believes will be resolved by theory of gravity, that, that it, will, it will revise that story sufficiently, that the whole idea of a singularity is kind of a false prophecy, really. And even Sir Roger in this pe- paper he wrote in 1965, which earned him the Nobel Prize, says that, he proves that a collapsing star will inevitably create a singularity in the general theory of relativity. But then he says, that's why relativity is probably gonna to have to be replaced by something quantum mechanical, right? So he says, probably you know these are going to be resolved when we get to the next level. Um, but yes, the, in some sense, I don't know if you've heard of holography, have we, have we talked about holography?
0: Uh, not for a while. It's always I mean, that that again is one of those things which is uh, and, and it, it, we must talk about because it's an in, it's, it's an idea which also, of course, people grasp onto in what might be seen as kind of charlatan areas as well. It's one of those things which seems to have clicked on. And the next thing is you will be listening to someone like, you know, in, you know, in, the, in the UK, someone like David Icke, who uses that as their reason for their particular uh not based in in the same reality that you're probably gonna say so yeah please give give us that understand of what we should now be understanding about that
2: i will assure you this is not not based but i'm not going to assure you it's true it's not necessarily true it's a speculation but one that has been incredibly productive in terms of uh our progress in understanding black holes theoretically but The idea of a hologram is simply that on a two-dimensional sheet, you encode enough information that you can project the illusion of a three-dimensional object. That's what a hologram is. And um, what people began to realize is that all of the information that goes into a black hole, all of its quantum information, anything physical about it encoded in any information of any kind, that is sealed behind the event horizon, is actually related to the area of the event horizon and not the volume of the black hole. So you might imagine that if I tried to pack information inside a black hole, I should be able to do better than just the area because the volume seems like I have a lot more space to pack more information. But in reality, we know that you cannot pack more information in a black hole than can be tolerated on the boundary event horizon. And that makes it seem like a hologram. A two-dimensional surface where all the information is encoded that projects the illusion of being a three-dimensional space and this led to extremely deep ideas not just about black holes but about the entire universe because if I try to pack, I literally am trying to make something like a hologram but I decide oh I'm just gonna use the whole 3d space to pack as much information as I can eventually you're packing up so much information you're going to create a black hole and we know that that can't have more information that can be tolerated on the boundary. Therefore, nothing in the universe can have more information than can be tolerated on the boundary. So we got real abstract real fast. But the idea is then not only is the black hole a hologram, you're a hologram. I'm a hologram. The entire universe is a hologram.
0: Now, when I mentioned before about that, I, I, I've seen you know, the, the, the idea of us being being holograms or possessing the properties of a hologram used by uh, people who are kind of, you know, selling various different forms of magic water. And they use these examples of... which they then start to say that this should have some influence on the way that we interact with each other or the way that we feel about ourselves, our individuality, etc. Now, this is the bit where I find it interesting, which is... Where do where for you is the pragmatic line to be drawn where you go, here is something fascinating about the properties of ourselves, but how much does that actually have an effect on how we should reflect about how we behave and, and our interaction with other people and other things?
2: Well, this is nothing new. I mean, as soon as quantum mechanics broke on the scene, people tried to use its seemingly exotic properties to justify all kinds of uh, false claims and um, all kinds of fake notions about reality, quantum mechanics, you know, allows you to 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 teleport psychologically or something like this. And and to me, the line is never so. It's 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 not at all subtle or blurry. It's quite distinct. The people who do that don't know anything about quantum mechanics. I once, saw your friend, our friend Brian Cox. Um, in a debate with someone who shall remain nameless, who was using quantum mechanics in this spiritual way to try to make spiritual or psychological arguments about the ability of the mind over matter. And and Brian said, just show me you can do freshman level quantum mechanics of a particle in a box and then we'll talk. (laughs) And so it has none of the scientific backing. It has none of the mathematical backing. There's no proof at the end of the day. The beauty about physics and math is is this is something that i discovered quite late in life which is why i became a physicist you know in college was this discovery nobody's saying what did einstein mean i don't understand if you learned special relativity uh You knew exactly what Einstein meant. You are not not belaboring. It's, it's, It's not psychological. It's not personal. It's not traceable to where he grew up in the world. It's not traceable to his personal circumstances. These are mathematical, provable constructs that can be shared with anybody. And anybody in the world can use them and teach them to the next generation. And the people who are speaking these very spiritual languages cannot do that. You did, it's just words. And so, um, so yes, if they can prove it to me using a pen and paper and some mathematical calculation and some reasonable scientific reproducibility, I would be terribly impressed. There's nothing that would thrill me more than for somebody to telepath into my mind using quantum mechanics. And if they can do that, they will be able to write it down and do the calculation and make predictions And they will be the same whoever performs those experiments.
0: Because that's, I mean, that's a a very, it's an interesting problem. And it's not your problem. I don't think it is necessarily science's problems. I think it's a much, it's a much broader critical thinking problem. I think when we did that show together in New York, we might've talked before about, I watched someone explain uh, homeopathy uh, using just E equals MC squared. And at one point saying you can kind of, you know, cross out the C squared and just turn it into E equals M. And, because people are immediately befuddled the moment they see any form of equation and they're being given some sense of reason, even though there's no ultimate reason to it, but it can appear that seems to be realizing that things are more complicated than, you know, that an equation very rarely can you just go. And they, actually, I know they've always printed it with that, but it's not required.
2: Well, it's funny. It's, it's of course harder for people to trust a group of people who are operating in a language that they did not learn and have not acquired. And I, and I do understand that that leads to a certain resentment, but I do feel we're in a very different generation where scientists are very generous with their knowledge and you don't have to study general relativity, but you do if you want to be able to do the calculations. But you can, without studying general relativity, with a group of people who have demonstrated some integrity in describing things like black holes, begin to trust that this community is not uh, conning you, that we are checking each other's work. We're very critical intellectually of each other's work, of our own work. The, the, the scientist should be the first person to most quickly say, I was wrong. And that's behaving scientifically. Um, it is not behaving scientifically to simply dig your heels in and indulge in fantasies about. I mean, fantasies are actually quite productive as a preliminary survey tool, <laughs> right, to help you formulate questions. But ultimately, you need to get in there and do the hard work.
0: It does. See, yeah, the, the old Einstein quote about with imagination, you can go anywhere. So you start off with imagination. But then once you've come up, you go, oh, now I have to whittle down the imagination. Now I've reached that.
2: Yeah. And, and black holes were an example of that. Einstein believed this mathematical proof when he first saw it when his friend wrote him during World War One, in, in this letter showing him the first proof of what we now call a black hole. Einstein absolutely believed the mathematics and the imagination was extraordinary of his friend, the scientist, but he didn't think nature would allow them to exist in reality. And, um, and so that's just a funny thing. He really, and, and it was reasonable for him to say that. It was reasonable to believe nature would protect us from their formation.
0: Now, when you were writing the Black Hole Survival Guide, I mean, it is, it's quite a kind of parsimonious take. You have managed to take a lot of information and condense it and make it comprehensible as well, Um but how did you? I mean, did you start with something enormous and chisel away? Which, what direction did it come? Did did you allow it to to slowly grow, or did you have to have to chip away? Because I, I imagine it was pretty hard to decide what is the information you because I presume for most people you you are hoping this is for first time kind of readers on this subject. I I, I would have thought that this is a great introduction to a very you know something which. Is a lot of of complexity.
2: Yeah, I, I think um, it, it's it's absolutely correct that it, it's whittled down. Um, the the it's an enormous subject, but I've thought about it so much. I've taught it so much. I wrote volumes on it. Absolutely, Robin. And I, a lot of the work of the final you know year of this book was making it short. <laughs> and you know the famous Mark Twain quote. I didn't have time to write you a short letter, so I wrote you a long one instead. <laughs> so I had the time uh, between originally writing this, putting it away for a while, for a long time, and then coming back to it and uh, spending the time to make it short. And it was a pleasure, actually, uh, to take away a lot of the extraneous stuff. And it's not, I hope it's for people who are being introduced to these ideas for the first time, but not exclusively because, to my mind, there's a lot of dispelling of these false notions. like like the idea that black holes are nothing is really extraordinary. And I do spend some time on that on the fact that they're a place and not a thing. And, um, some of their more exceptional qualities because we see them the way they're often portrayed. People portray them as these, these ravenous, just destructions, weapons of mayhem. And actually it's black holes are, are in some sense, an extremely peaceful, elegant, featureless, stunningly pristine terrain. It's only mayhem if you put them in a scenario where there's lots of other debris around them. So the mayhem is at least in part the fault of the star that's being cannibalized or the debris at the center of the galaxy. But if a black hole is sitting alone in space where things are reasonably far away, uh, it is actually a nearly perfect phenomenon, meaning a black hole is almost like a fundamental particle. It is incredibly simple and elegant and quiet. Um, It's a stunningly simple phenomenon. So for instance, uh, two stars can be incredibly different, but two black holes are technically identical if they have the same mass, the same electric charge, and they spin the same the way the earth spins. If they have those three properties the same, they are absolutely, utterly indistinguishable and perfectly featureless. And so in some sense, black holes are like fundamental particles of gravity.
0: And it is, and they are still, I think, the number one. The last time I did this straw poll, asking scientists, not just cosmologists, physicists, broadly scientists, it's still the number one place to die on a wish list.
2: <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, for sure.
0: <laughs> and it is. I, I remember Matt Lucas, when we had him on Monkey Cage, and you were talk, explaining to him, and he kept trying to work out, do I want to be in the black hole? Do I want to be watching someone fall in? Do I want to be... And it's uh, as you explain more and more, people get so many different visions, don't they? This, I mean, can you run us through that... that that idea of of the falling in and and the sight as you meet that event horizon
2: yeah absolutely um so the because the event horizon is a place and not a thing there's no material there it's nothing there's no stuff you would sail across the event horizon very comfortably nothing terrible would happen to you actually you might not even know you had done so if you imagine the black hole has no backdrop it's just dark against a dark sea of space, you would have no idea you had crossed the event horizon. Now, if you left somebody behind in the space station, they would understand that you were in trouble because they would start to see that your clocks had slowed down, that you were approaching closer and closer because of the warping of space time around black holes. Um, The way that you might know that you fell in is if it was a bright background. So let's say you have a black hole against all of the beautiful stars in the galaxy, which are very bright, and they cast this shadow of the event horizon on the sky. And you would notice the stars start to evolve really rapidly. So in the same way that they perceive your time slowing down, you perceive theirs speeding up. So you might start to get an idea that something was going wrong. And once within the event horizon, one of the other myths I love to dispel is that black holes, while dark on the outside, can be bright on the inside. So as you fall in, the light from the galaxy can fall in behind you, and you can actually witness the evolution of eons in uh, in the Milky Way, and uh, right before you're crushed to death, <laughs> miserably. And in those moments, you would get like this intense flash of light as the light that fell in behind you becomes more and more concentrated. You get like a beautiful, bright burst of light. But in the process, as you get closer and closer to the singularity, it's actually the curvature of space-time is so extreme that you know your knees are being drawn together and crushed your whole body is being drawn together and crushed meanwhile your toes and your head are being separated and flayed and eventually your ligaments will tear apart and it would all become pretty terrible and ultimately you are broken apart into your fundamental particles which all rush into the singularity to an unknown fate essentially and that's the classic story we don't necessarily subscribe to that story all the time anymore but that's the classic story of, of what would happen if Einstein's general theory of relativity his theory of curved space time were to be the entire story that would be your fate
0: I think it was when you got to describing the being flayed that Matt Lucas changed his desire for which position he wanted to be in I think that's when he decided to be out the black hole watching people fall in but it is well, a beautiful thing also- isn't it, it-
2: <laughs> it's like a storm also because the curvature of space-time is so extreme that your atoms, your mass, your energy is disrupting the space-time so that it becomes almost like a storm in space-time. So your atoms themselves can't be ignored here. It becomes this, um, it, it really does become like a, like a whirlwind in, in the center. But it's not the only way to die at the hands of a black hole. I, I called it black hole survival guard, but it rarely ends well in any method that I suggest (laughs) um but yeah there are definitely other ways to die by a black hole that don't necessarily even involve falling in
0: I think also there's a beautiful in these stories what one the mere fact that you know when you're dying it's not just your life that's flashing before your eyes it's also the life of the universe so that does that makes it a bigger picture in that moment of mortality but also that idea that I I think it's such a a brilliant illustration of the lack of a universal clock time you know which is one thing which I I think very often is introduced to children far too late that it's something that if they could know from much earlier I know that um, Faye Dowke has talked about the fact that the way that children perceive time before they're introduced to clock time is far closer to Einstein's perception of it than you know
2: yeah Well, if we whizzed around near the speed of light, we would absolutely intuit these differences because it would have been in our familiar experience. It's just that none of us move quickly enough, but we have measured these effects very simply even around the Earth. it's, It's well known that the GPS units in your phone require a correction for the difference in the time, the rate at which time is ticking on satellites versus the rate at which time is ticking down here on the surface of the Earth. And that's because the Earth, like the black hole, distorts time, just not as drastically. So we don't really notice it. But our phones are sensitive enough that if you're trying to specify to somebody what street corner you're on by looking at Google Maps, you would be off by kilometers if you did not correct for the relativistic dilation of time.
0: That's fantastic this book is is brilliant it is uh depending on the speed you've been traveling while you've been listening to this podcast it is either out now it was out seven years ago it's out next week or it's out last week but black hole survival guide uh is uh, and and as you said i i think it, it's not necessarily just as an introduction for people who've never really thought about it before there are a lot of ideas which uh are made very very fresh in this book as well so um what's the next one by the way are you working on another book
2: well, first of all, thank you so much. I really appreciate you saying so. And, um, uh, yeah, there's a sort of um, trajectory into what I call the hard stuff, which is all so new. It's 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 just happening as we speak. Um, what's next? Gosh, I don't know, Robin. I mean, I, you're not going to believe this, but several years ago, I started a novel about a pandemic <laughs> that crossed the species barrier in a wet market. Um, in the novel, it was in Africa, not in china but um but it was it's not exactly sci-fi but it is this sort of very speculative dystopian um plague that um i never finished and so who knows maybe maybe it's time to finish that book uh
0: those nostradamus <laughs> qualities um <laughs> thank you very much thanks everyone for listening thanks to our producer trent burton and
1: uh we'll be back uh next week
2: thanks robin
1: Thank you for listening. Black Hole Survival Guide is out now. Don't forget to rate and review five stars on Apple Podcasts. Patreon support is more important than it's ever been here at the Cosmic Shambles Network, as well as the crowdfunder for the 24-hour online nine lessons show. All the information for everything, plus all the other podcasts and blogs and documentaries and everything you can find at CosmicShambles.com. Have a great week. We'll speak to you soon. Bye.
0: This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network.